jazz composer-guitarist James Chirillo's influences range from Count Basie to Bell Bartok. James talked with me about the inspiration he gets from the greats who came before him, and especially the influence classical music has had on his work. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. James discussed the role of a rhythm guitarist in a jazz band. It's funny, most guitar players coming up now, they don't, they don't view playing rhythm with the same uh, priority, I guess, as they do playing mm. solo, playing in a rhythm section, uh, comping, that kind of a thing. I mean, initially, uh, rhythm guitar, the entire idea, it's, it's to help define the beat, but also to provide a harmonic uh, pulse. So between the the bass line and the rhythm guitar chords, uh, you have the entire harmonic action that's going on. So you referenced a little earlier in the lead-in here to me um, the article that was printed on the Freddie Green website, freddiegreen.org. So, I uh, love that article. Talk about Freddie Green for those who might not know who yes, Freddie Green is. Yes, Freddie Green was the uh, <laughs> non-parial, am I saying a word right, uh, uh, creator of the rhythm guitar style in the big band, really. he's he's. I, there were plenty of guys that came up along with him, but he's the most well-known because he was so unique. He had an absolutely unbelievable pulse. And he played, uh, he used heavy bronze-wound guitar strings, and he had the action up really high. And what that does then is it gives you a, a, really, a really strong pulse. It gives you a really strong thuck. The amplitude with when you hit that string, it just speaks right out at you. It decays mm. really quickly also. Oh, that's interesting. That's all because of where he puts the action? Because the action's so high. Oh, that's interesting. So the work for the left hand, because now you've got a string that if you look... If you see a video of him nowadays where they really do a close-up, up around the 12th fret, you'll see the strings look like they're literally three-quarters of an inch above the fingerboard. That's a lot of tension. That's a lot of work. That's also another reason why he really didn't take too many solos. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. But you would always hear that thuck and that pulse That's why it came through. That's why it came through. Oh, that's interesting. And that's also why... Uh, the rhythm guitar concept, he would rarely play more than two notes, if ever. And usually he would just play on one string. The fourth string, because that's the one that acoustically, uh, it's the strongest one on the guitar. It's right in the middle of the arch top. That's got the most tension to it right off the bat. And it also acoustically is in the register that uh, it's the tenor register. So it works perfect to play the thirds and the sevenths of the chord, which is what the rhythm guitar player does. The bass player plays the root in the fifth, and the guitar player works his line, Freddie Green worked his line in on that fourth string. So he'd be maybe hitting a few strings, but the only one he'd really be pressing down is the fourth string. Sometimes he'd throw in a little third string, because you sort of mix it up a little bit, give you a little... Maybe you're a little bit fuller sonority there in the rhythm guitar, maybe even three once in a while, but rarely... It'd almost always be just the fourth string. That's fascinating because you think he's playing for for a non-guitar player. True. You think he's playing all the way across or playing a full chord. True, true. no. 
because all that that really just that just gets it mushes things up. That's so interesting. He also seemed to hold the guitar a little differently, at least to me, with the people that I've played with, and I got to play with Freddie, but I've played more often with other guitar players who seem to hold, I'm picturing the way you hold the guitar or other guitar players. I know, didn't Freddie have it just back a little bit? Well, he had, I mean, I, I heard him live once. Uh, it was a big old hall. It was Eisenhower Hall up at West Point. So, you know, it would vary. I think I've, I've heard and or read stories about he had find that one spot in the room where he felt the guitar resonated the best. <laughs> so he may turn his chair slightly a little bit sideways or maybe a little bit sideways the other way towards the right, whatever. Uh, and also sometimes it was it's so you can hear it better yourself. Mm. You'll sort of put your, your knee up and tilt the body of the guitar so it's more facing up towards the ceiling. Yeah, that's what I meant. Instead of straight forward. It looked like Correct. That. And he'd do that, I think, sometimes so the guitar would resonate better in the room. The sound would project. Maybe you had a really live uh, acoustic surface on the ceiling. And so the sound would bounce off the ceiling a little better. And also sometimes it just, you're doing such a repetitive muscle motion, I've found. Sometimes I'll do that and I'll just put that thing up there just so I can make the stroke go a little more like I'm doing it, um, what would be the word, parallel mm -hmm. to the floor instead of that straight up and down perpendicular to the floor. Gives, it gives a, a couple of my muscles in my right arm a little bit of a break. <laughs> so, uh, uh, no one knows how hard we work in the rhythm this section. This is true. We're, we're chunking along the whole time. If the horn players get all the glory. We do all the work.
guitarist Freddie Green with the Count Basie Orchestra. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest, guitarist James Chirillo, talked about how the role of the guitar player has changed over the years. Talking in depth about Freddie and, and some other people, when you hear someone like that, are you directly influenced and trying to do some of those same things, or is it more just the all-over feel? When you were coming up and learning guitar, did you think, oh, that's something I want to try to do? Well, certainly. Uh, your first experience in bands, big bands, as a guitar player, is you're playing rhythm. You're not... Very rarely are there guitar solos in big bands. <laughs> I have noticed that now that you mentioned it. There's way too many horn players, and um, usually they're the ones at the time that are writing the arrangements. They're going to write themselves the solos. Right, of <laughs> no, course. No, I'm, I'm being actually sort of facetious there. But the point is, your job, you're playing rhythm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or to comp, which of course is short for a company, the soloist. So playing rhythm... Just my experience at that time when I was coming up, I just sort of got that feeling by osmosis. Mm. It's not like I sat there and, and thought, I need to practice how to play rhythm. Mm. The idea when you're, when you're doing that kind of a, a motion, just like a bass player or a drummer, is to give that beat a sense of forward motion without speeding up. Ah, that's the trick. It's got to be an even quarter note. That's the whole deal. It's If you play with a drummer and the drummer is not quite even on the, or he's sort of pushing the beat and it's it's rushing, it's moving forward a little bit. It's sort of like walking down the street and somebody's always behind you, giving you a push in the back of the shoulder or something in the middle of the back. So uh, the point is that's hard to play then for the horn players to solo, for the ensemble to play with whatever, so that your job in the rhythm section is to give them a nice, even, forward motion feeling kind of pulse. Got a nice, buoyant beat. So there's a whole feeling that's involved there. And just from what little jazz at that time, I mean, I was a rock and roll guitar player at first. I was a... Wasn't everybody who played guitar? absolute total (laughs) savage. Did you have long hair? Moderately so, as long as my father, who was a career Navy officer, would allow. Ah. Uh, but uh, so playing, yeah, so playing rhythm, just learning it by osmosis, I, I just had a sense of the feeling I was supposed to put in there. And just from trying it, I, I could tell right off the bat, if I started throwing in four and five note chords, it just didn't, one, it didn't feel right, but two, it just made everything sort of mushy and weighty. And and the more I did it, the more I just started to figure out less is more. This feels right. What I remember Freddie Green putting in his contribution to the recordings that I'd heard or when I heard him live, this sounds like what this works, this works, this is it. It's not like I put on Count Basie records and listened to him specifically to say, is he playing one note or two notes? <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you're playing with the band and you realize, I don't need that third string. That, it, does, it sounds wimpy. It's too thin a string. I need that fourth string to give me that strong tenor note to work that two-voice harmony line with the bass player. That's the whole deal. It's wonderful because you've described so beautifully what a guitar adds 
to the whole mix with a big band because people very often, as we both know, won't hire a guitar player. They'll think it's extra. Correct. Or we don't need it because we have bass and drums. But there's a whole other role that the guitar player is playing that you've just talked about. Now, how do you think differently with a smaller group? Well, it, it, it depends... On a I mean, quintet so far, or a quartet or something? So far, I mean, we're talking about a style, you know, that really began to go out of popular favor, or you could say arguably in the 50s or 60s. Okay, somewhere around in there. Because that music initially, all, was it was for dancing. It was the popular music of the day. It was for dancing. So the role of the guitar player, as we spoke about to give a harmonic... Uh, contribution to that rhythmic pulse but also that rhythmic pulse to keep the beat nice and clear for everybody not just the band but the dancers too it really centers the band to have a strong rhythm guitar i can't tell you how many guys say they've never played with say an acoustic rhythm guitar i mean and i do electric and all the rest of that stuff too but how many guys in the band will say well one they're amazed they can hear the guitar like on the other side of the band, one, and then two, it just brings the whole band together because there's like there's that there's that added pulse right in the middle. Freddie Green on guitar with the Count Basie Orchestra. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest, guitarist James Chirillo, talked about how the role of the guitar player has changed over the years. Charlie Christian began to plug in, play electric, 
give the guitar equal weight with horns so we could play single note lines. That began to change the function of the guitar. Okay, so, and in the 50s, 60s, then that role of having that straight 4-4 beat outlined all the time, guys would play, began to play a little bit more around the beat. The drummer wasn't playing just straight ding ding a ding ding a ding all the time they'd be mixing things up a bit so that role pretty much was left to the bass the guitar player started playing the melody lines with the horns and da 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 and loosely comping like a piano then that's where the role began to change mm. so when you're in a small group if you're playing acoustic your job basically is about the same you can be a little more subtle, maybe throwing a few more things instead of just whomping those quarter notes out mm -hmm. of the band. But if you're playing electric, you've got a few ways you can go. If you're going to play rhythm, you got to turn that amp way down because those speakers are so directional. If you turn it up to where you think it's going to sound good with where you are, 20 feet out in front, you're going to be the loudest guy out there. <laughs> and so, that, so electric rhythm has got to be really soft. You listen to the old uh, Oscar Peterson trio, Things with Herb Ellis and Barney Kessel, and you can hear that rhythm back there, but it's very soft, it's very subtle. Herb's playing electric, of course. Mm -hmm. So that's... It's about feel, though, about I think. Feel. I mean, Absolutely. I know as a musician that loves to play with guitar players, for me, it starts just being a part of me, rather than thinking specifically, I'm hearing what he's doing here. There might be something that brings me around and inspires me to do something, but I always right. think of the guitar player as sort of coming inside of you and that pulse is there with you That's right. and helping you play better. That's right. So it's supporting you, but it also is something, I, it's interesting. I really do think of it as sort of coming inside and making me play differently and helping right. me play differently. That's right. Now, I know you're a big Dick McDonough fan. Oh, yeah. So am I. Talk about Dick. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, he was arguably the most in-demand studio session guitar player of the 30s, early 30s. He died in 1937. He drank a lot, too, from what I gather, so that's, I think, what got him. But uh, he and, and fellas like Carl Kress, unsung heroes. These guys were absolute masters of the guitar and not just playing rhythm. Carl Kress used a sort of a hybrid banjo tuning. So for his sixth string, he had a low B-flat, minor second away from an actual bass low A string. And it was tuned in fifths and a funny little interval in the middle. I, I don't know his exact tuning, but I know it was like a hybrid banjo tuning point. Is it was like mm -hmm. a, I think it was like a big B-flat six chord mm -hmm. spread out. So he could he could play these really fat rhythm voicings. Oh, that's, that's how why he got I did those this. things. Ah. But then with that funny tuning, now that for him, it was hard for him, say, to play uh, diatonic scale-wise kind of lines. Oh, that's interesting. Because that tuning did, on that large a scale an instrument didn't lend itself so well. So he was primarily he was primarily a rhythm player, but his chord solo things which came out of a banjo style where they'd like play the chord and then you know ching that melody out on the top of the different chords that they're hitting unbelievable dick mcdonough there you go he used a standard six string tuning uh guitar tuning and uh what what i brought was his solo guitar arrangement of honeysuckle rose which 
a guy, an old teacher of mine named Jack Peterson, when I went to North Texas State, he played that for me. It, it totally floored me. And maybe a week later, he had uh, he made a copy. He had already transcribed that thing and written it out, so he made me a copy and gave me mm, that thing. So I love this recording. This actually made me want to play guitar. I played just a, a teeny bit, but I was already thick into the piano. And then I heard this, and I thought, maybe I've made the wrong choice. And that's really <laughs> a big compliment wow. to a recording that I thought right. it, it hooked me in so right. much that I thought, I want to do this. Right. Talk to me about Can't We Be Friends, this recording you brought. Okay. Uh, this is on my CD, Sultry Serenade. Uh, it was my first as a leader. And on this, I just thought, you're going to hear the guitar playing, the melody, on everything else. <laughs> and I had Scott Robinson and uh, Randy Sankey. Aww. You know, I had, and had a great rhythm section. Couldn't get anybody good? No. <laughs> So I thought for this one, because I love Dick McDonough, the first chorus is uh, a guitar melody chorus, in that, and I'm playing acoustic guitar all the way through, uh, playing the melody in that chordal kind of a style. And then we modulate, and the horns come in. And then for the rest of the track, I'm just playing rhythm for them. Mm. Figured it was the least I could do, because they were playing for me during the rest of the day. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, uh, so it gives some contrast and uh, shows you what an acoustic guitar is supposed to do. Thank you. 
differently, or do you think differently when you're playing electric and acoustic? Do you just play, and at this point, you just do what you're feeling, or is it a very different focus? I, I'm asking because well, I talk to horn players who say, when I play alto, I play much differently than when I play tenor. I don't play my alto licks on my tenor because it doesn't work. Well, for, uh, it ties into what we spoke about before regarding the role. That's one. Uh, two, electric. The action's a lot lower. It's a lot lighter. So you can articulate. I could never play a bebop head in my acoustic guitar. No way. <laughs> the strings are up too high. <laughs> or I could play about eight measures and then my hand would get tired and that'd be the end of that. So it just the nature of the instrument itself helps determine what it is you're going to do. So you don't have the weight. The acoustic guitar doesn't have the weight. So if you got a drummer playing sticks, there's no way I'm going to start doing fast single note lines on an acoustic guitar. It's just not it's not going to come through for one and then two it's just too darn hard to play. Uh, so for the electric, yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it, it it's a different it's just a total different head really. Sultry Serenade. Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. 
For a discography of the music played on our show and a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. To find out more about my music and what I'm doing, and to sign up for our email newsletter, visit judycarmichael.com. I'm talking with composer-guitarist James Chirillo. Now, you are greatly influenced by classical music. Oh, yeah. And have done some interesting writing projects. Talk about that. This is very exciting. Well, one of the first things that uh, I was lucky enough to be able to do was a clarinet concerto for Ken Poplowski and uh, and jazz band, uh, and Lawrence Schoenberg's band. I had studied with Johnny Carisi, and he, he passed away in October of 92, if I remember right, 92, yeah. So, and he had had a stroke the preceding March, and one of the last times that I'd uh, gone over to his place to have a lesson, hang, play, whatever, I had just dashed off a little sketch of a melody and had brought it in to him and said, what are some of the ways, how would you approach developing this, maybe changing it around? And so we talked about that a bit, and and then not long after, he had the stroke, which basically laid him out for about six months, and then he passed away. So after that, that material, just sort of playing around with that material, took a whole mournful kind of turn, and I wrote the, what turned out to be the second movement of this piece, the theme initially was a real up-tempo kind of thing, which is the third movement of this thing. Uh, but the first thing that I wrote, really, was this elegy second movement, which, of course, is in memory of Johnny Carisi. <laughs>
call that the uh, homage concerto for clarinet and jazz orchestra because the initial, uh, the first movement was really inspired by Eddie Sauter's writing for the Ray McKinley Orchestra around 19, right? It's after world, post World War II, 1948 or so. And he wrote some pieces for that band. Uh, Idiot's Delight, which is what I brought for you here. They sound like they could have been written yesterday. Mm, that's uh, the biggest compliment. These oh. ones that age really well, or don't age. Or don't age. It's abs- it sounds absolutely fresh. No, nothing like it today, period. So that first movement of this clarinet piece of mine, that was inspired by Eddie's writing for the Ray McKinley band, Idiot's Delight, particularly. Uh, the second movement, as I described earlier, that's really inspired. It really took a lot of little melodic and harmonic turns like Johnny used to like to use. Uh, oh, a quick anecdote about Johnny. One day I went over there for a lesson, and I'm a serious coffee drinker, so we we'd always start, he'd put on a pot for a cup of coffee water get going he began to pick up the pot with his right hand just began to pour and he put the pot down abruptly picked it up with his left hand and then finished pouring and I thought hmm he noticed me wondering what the heck he was doing and so he said yeah I periodically change the way I do 
just normal everyday things. It helps keep my outlook fresh. <laughs> How's that for a lesson? I like that. I like that. So, uh, okay, so that was Johnny. And then the third movement of this piece uh, was inspired by, uh, well, Billy Strayhorn. The, his, he liked to play with the different sections in the band, have them going off rhythmically against each other. That's one person who helped me conceive of that. Uh, of course, Bill Finnegan's arrangement for the Tommy Dorsey Band of the Continental. That also sounds like it could have been written yesterday. Sounds like it's from outer space. <laughs> Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with my guest, composer and jazz guitarist, James Chirillo, about one of his favorite composers, Bella Bartok. I brought something that's probably much lesser known of his from people that know Bartok at all. Uh, Hungarian composer, musicologist, folk song collector, and... In 1935, he, he began studying a book of 16th century counterpoint by a Danish musicologist named Jeppesen, analyzing Palestrina primarily, but how those guys treated their material. And uh, Bartok's buddy Kodai, Zoltan Kodai, was always telling him, hey, you should write some choral pieces. Kodai, he developed a choral method, and he's a great composer in his own right. 
you should write some choral pieces. And he never could get Bartok to do it, whatever. But after reading this book, getting into this book with uh, Study in Palestrina, Bartok wrote 27 uh, short courses based on, like, folk poems uh, for either children's or women's chorus. Mm. And they're just beautiful. Talk about other instrumentalists that have inspired you. Because you don't just listen to guitar players and classical guys. Correct. Uh, well, Jim Hall, of course. His use of open strings on some of his chord voicings. Of course, and now he was a student of composition also. So you hear that in his approach to playing. Uh, that's one. Tiny Grimes. I studied with Tiny Grimes when I first came to town. A uh, great four-string guitar player that played with Art Tatum, the Art Tatum Trio. He said he never practiced so much in his life as when he was <laughs> playing with Art and uh, Slam, Slam Stewart. Classical guitar players, when they play, they'll constantly shift exactly where they place their right hand along the length of the string to get a darker tone closer to the fingerboard, a little brighter tone closer to the bridge. Most jazz guys don't do that. Tiny Grimes... He would, he would get a sweep of that right arm going and, for instance, harmonizing the plunger trumpets on Duke Ellington's It Don't Mean a Thing. Goo-wap, goo-wap, goo-wap. He would hit that thing with the goo <laughs> down by the fingerboard and sweep that right hand back by the bridge with the chord voicing that he was hitting in. It would sound like goo-wap, 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 goo-wap. Oh, that's wonderful. It sounded great. So he got me into uh, utilizing a little bit more of the different tones available on the guitar. 
so tiny grimes. Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest, composer James Chirillo, talked about the musicians who have inspired him. Piano players like, well, Percy Granger for one, and I, I, I brought you a piece of his. Piano virtuoso, I mean, primarily he's known as a classical musician. He made his money really as a piano virtuoso. But he was a great composer and, uh, and collector of British, uh, Scottish, folk tunes. He's also primarily known writing-wise for his settings of British folk tunes. When he would set them, he set them as if the singer from whom he transcribed the melody, or whoever uh, he had gotten that source from, maybe somebody else transcribed it, but he would try to set, make his setting to be the perfect setting for the way that singer sang that melody. Hmm. So... He may have little retards here and there or swells or the dynamic contrasts in his arrangement. That's where that singer put him in in the first place. That was his initial concept anyway. And his harmonic sense, he's actually a very innovative writer.
So you have a project with Warren Vachet, right. string project. I love strings. Oh, I yes. love jazz and strings. Some people aren't as crazy about that. They would say, like when Charlie Parker did his things, I've always been just wild about strings oh, yeah. and jazz. Yeah, Talk well, about Charlie, that project. Yeah, Charlie Parker. Actually, that brings to mind another point, just bringing up Charlie Parker in regard to Charlie Parker and, and strings. Uh, one thing, I mean, I wrote a few arrangements for Warren's uh, string record. It was with the Scottish Ensemble. We did it in Glasgow uh, last July. And it just came out. It's out there now on the Arbor's label. It's entitled Don't Look Back. Title track. One, Bill Finnegan also wrote three arrangements on that CD. First things he's written in ten years, and they sound beautiful. The other thing is, besides the ones I wrote, after Johnny Carisi passed away, his widow asked me to go through his papers to make sure she didn't throw out something that shouldn't get thrown out. And I came across just the parts to a piece entitled Spring for all the strings, oboe, harp, and another part in the upper left-hand corner that said bird. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so it was a ballad treatment of Springsville wow. that they never did. Now, I don't know if they ran it at the session and, and thought, well, it just... It's it's just too different. I can after I heard this thing. So anyway, the point is, all of Johnny's things are at uh, Rutgers. She gave them all to the Institute of Jazz Studies. So I went down there and you know, we dug that one out and made copies of the parts. And so I made a score and and edited the, that thing down. And we did that too. And that's for oboe and harp. And bless him, Matt Domber, the head of Arbor's Records. He he sprung for the oboe and the harp just for that one tune. That no, day. it's so nice when they do the right thing. Oh, what a sweetheart. That's great. So there's a, a ballad version of Springsville written for Charlie Parker with strings mm. that never got done. That's on Warren's record. So, But what I've included here is a, a piece that I wrote called uh, Vols Prismatique, which the initial conception was inspired by a painting I saw at the Georges Pompidou Center in Paris Aww. by Sonia Delaunay, wife of the artist Robert and mother of the jazz writer, Charles. There you go. You're yeah. bringing it all together. Well, they did. <laughs> <laughs> I just, but this is perfect. Yeah. This is, by talking about jazz-inspired, you've got all these different arts yeah. working together. It was, a, it was a painting she did called uh, Prisms Electrique from 1914. She liked just these unbelievably vibrant colors and shapes just amassed next mm -hmm. to each other. The eye then perceives them slightly different than if you just saw that one shape and that one color by itself. There's a term for that, that which I forget at the, at the moment, but you get the idea. Mm -hmm. And so that was, she was one of the originators of that style. Ah, oh, wonderful. And this thing, as soon as I saw it in that uh, in that in the museum there, boy, that really caught my eye. And it just struck me, not no particular music motif, but it just struck me the treatment of those shapes and colors, it just struck me there's a there's a concept there on how to organize some musical material. Oh, wonderful. So that just sort of it just sort of struck me that way. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe a month or so later, after I got back, uh, from the and that was a vacation. I wasn't working, that was great. So after I got back from Paris then a, a little uh, idea came to mind, and, and that's where that uh, that piece came from. So that's a waltz, and Warren. Now it's it's partly written out, but through about say forty percent of it, he's improvising. 
but I gave the string players plenty to do. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think they were surprised throughout this entire project. They had a lot to do. They're not just sitting there playing footballs, right. background footballs. Right. They've got the ball. Well, you know I'm a big fan. Okay. So Thank I'm you. so glad you had the time to do this. And Thank I've you. learned a lot, too. All these things I've been hearing all over the years, and I feel like I have a much better understanding of what's actually going I'm on radio, <laughs> so no one can see me. Right. I'm here pretending She's like playing I'm playing guitar. guitar. Right. Yes. Do I look convincing? Oh, yeah. That's, the mo- that's it. That's it. I got it. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you so much, James. This has been great. You're very welcome. Thank you, Judy. You've been listening to composer-guitarist James Chirillo. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. The opening music was airmail special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is old-fashioned love from my CD Trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter, or to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. And to find out more about what I'm doing in my music, visit judycarmichael.com. Special thanks to Tom Rickenback, Stephen Linda Plotnicki, and our webmaster, Megan Lewis. 
Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway & Sons, Newman's Own, and the American Hotel, Sag Harbor, New York. Visit online at theamericanhotel.com.